listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humour. Welcome back to the Good Morning podcast. We are your hosts, Sal and Im, and we are back with a banger of an episode today, guys. Before we jump in to today's conversation with none other than the amazing Dr. Joanne Cacciatore, Sal, you've recently just passed UK Mother's Day. How how was that for you? How are you feeling? Because I completely forgot it was UK Mother's Day until like the end of the day after I saw your post. I had a massive grief buddy fail. So I'm so sorry. That's so fine. You were you were kind of grief for yourself and you've been having a bit of a <laughs> bit of a shit one recently. So we can't all, always one. remember all the things. And you're not from the UK. Yeah, but you do. But you do. Yes, but <laughs> my superpower and you've got different superpowers. Okay. And also, <laughs> I almost forgot it was UK Mother's Day. So there you go. That's how I am. Like I'm Tell actually me. I'm actually okay. Like in previous years, it would really be like looming, you know, that kind of milestone Mm -hmm. the week leading up to it. I'd be really conscious that it was UK Mother's Day. And for me, being from the UK, I feel the UK Mother's Day way more than the Aussie one, because obviously I always celebrated it in March with my mum. I'm from the UK. So even though this is an Aussie podcast, for me, the March Mother's Day was always like griefier and more prevalent you know yeah yeah um, I absolutely know but a bit of progress this year I woke up on the day and was like oh it's UK Mother's Day and I didn't have any of that griefiness in the lead up to it and another heavy anticipation I mean we've been fucking busy as well let's not lie like we haven't had much time <laughs> don't to even know what day it is yeah I actually don't like I'm writing in my journal every morning and I'm like what day is it like what's the day like I feel my brain is a bit scrambled egg-ish at the moment but um but that's progress and we had a little kundalini session together didn't we our first one last night because I think we've both been a bit like feeling a bit heavy and needing some of the any energy kind of clear clearance and um and we went and had an in-person sesh didn't we bit different to a grief sesh yeah it couldn't have come at a better time to be honest um thanks so much for taking me along to that it was amazing um ignore my well listeners won't see this but I've got this like band-aid on with googly eyes I was just cooking dinner and I sliced my fingernail right down the center so it's a bit sore um fun fact great but yeah this kundalini session was amazing it was so amazing I'm just so glad that you don't open your eyes and look over to me in it because I like my my hands are flailing about doing like their own thing it's so weird it's so weird so listeners who will have listened to what uh previous episodes im had a kundalini session with rebecca jacks recently she also had a kundalini healing session um with rebecca jacks in bali it's basically like an energy healing session very top line description of what it is um but we went to one together in sydney last night and it's just a really good way to like clear your energy when you're feeling a bit out of whack and what can happen is you can have these kind of sudden movements and in basically you were like the claw weren't you <laughs> yeah I love that you're joking you're like gonna start doing the worm around the room I'll just roll over you oh my yeah, god we were on I the phone like... yesterday weren't we and you were like I'm gonna come and I was like you're like yeah I'm probably just gonna scream I'm like is it gonna be like the exorcist <laughs> pretty much pretty much 
but no, it was amazing. And um, just, yeah, I feel a bit groggy today. I feel a bit heavy after it, but I feel like you and I really needed it. We've been going full force lately um, because in case you hadn't heard, guys, we wrote a book. Um, just dropping that in there again. Our, <laughs> our book is out now in Australia, New Zealand and the UK, Ireland and Europe. And it will be out in the US and Canada in on the 2nd of May. So not too long. I'm so sorry you guys have had to wait a little while longer to get your hands on it. But um, thanks so much to everyone who sent us some feedback so far and who are loving it and has shared it on Instagram. Honestly, means so much to us to hear your feedback and see your reviews. So thank you for that. And if you have read it and have loved it, please do leave us a review on whichever platform that you bought it on as well, because that really helps the book. Um, yeah, so we wrote a book. Now, on to today's episode. This guest has been highly requested by so many of you for so long, hasn't she, Im? And we yeah. are so excited to bring you this conversation today. So we are talking to Dr. Jo, who is a best-selling author. She's a professor and an expert on traumatic death. She's one of the first people that started writing about grief and talking about grief and especially traumatic grief. So she is an absolute legend and we talk about a lot of big topics with joe in this conversation don't we am including a highly highly requested subject of which a lot of you have wanted us to cover in depth on the podcast for a long time and that is traumatic loss and how it impacts you and how to cope also the difficulty of losing a child um, and also how we can cope when an animal dies so lots of big topics that we hit in this convo and joe shares loads of griefy wisdom so guys we really really hope that you take as much comfort from this incredible conversation as we did so dr joe you have been a highly requested guest in our community and your work has really helped to change the way we talk about grief as a society so it is a real honor to have you join us today thank you i'm really glad to be here to talk about the most important thing that we can talk about as as beings on this planet and I feel like you are the sort of godmother of this grief movement. I think you were one of the first people to really start talking about grief and traumatic loss back in the early 90s. And some of our audience, Dr. Joe, may already be familiar with you and your work. But for anyone who isn't, can you please tell us about your experience with grief and the important work that you do? Um, sure. Yeah, I can't, I stumbled into this very reluctantly. I did not go willingly into the night. Um, my daughter died. My fourth child died in 1994 and that changed everything for me. And I looked for resources and I looked for research and I looked for scholars who studied this. And I found some people who studied grief, but it was mostly gerontology, right? Not, not a child who dies and certainly for the most part, not traumatic grief and the nuances of traumatic grief, which are feel different in some ways. And um, so I started, you know, sort of researching myself. I think I was born to be a researcher. This is long before I went back to school and became a professor, right, at the university. So I eventually went back to school and, and got a number of degrees and went on for my doctorate and uh, started to study it because there was very, it was definitely understudied. It was definitely understudied. And then, and, but before I went back to school, I actually started the Miss Foundation, right. To help families whose children were dying or had died. And and that quickly grew. I mean, I didn't realize that the gap between the need and the services available to people. 
So that quickly grew. It just sort of, you know, uh, it was very organic. Um, I am not actually a great planner. So there was very little planning. <laughs> I, I just, I say it's almost like it was divinely guided. I, you know, I'm not sure what I believe about the afterworld, but it was like there was a force that was moving things along and it felt sort of unstoppable at some yes. point. And I thought, you know, this is out of my hands now. This is, I don't know whose hands it's in, but it's out of my hands now. This is, a, the time has come. We need to start talking about this. And I I guess I realized somewhere deep inside, there was sort of this small, still voice that, you know, that used to whisper to me, you know, grieving people are going to be the ones who change the world, who bring peace. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be, it's not going to be people who don't know what this kind of deep loss is. It's going to be people who know deep loss. Because when you've had this kind of suffering, you, you see the world, you, 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 you kind of exist in a space between, I call it the world of the living and the world of the dead. You're kind of in a liminal space. And yes. you really- I've not heard it like that before. No, but, but exactly it's- exactly what it's like. Yeah. We always say, don't we, Im? Like, it's like you see life through a different lens yes. after loss, but you've just articulated it way better than we oh ever have. God, I got chills at that. That's yeah. So spot on. Yeah. So, so uh, I guess I, I guess I knew that that's the place of, where the painful, the excruciating magic happens for us as human beings, where we can bring, if we fully inhabit our grief, we can bring a kind of fierce compassion that really has its own energy and that is unstop an unstoppable force. I love that. I, yeah. yeah. And I think that unstoppable force, like that's something that Sal and I can relate to too. Like when our moms died suddenly, we just randomly met at a support group and we were like so similar and everything just aligned. And then next minute we've got a podcast and it just was just full steam ahead and there was no stopping us in the depths of the most painful experience of our lives. And it was, right. it, it is, it's like a, like a force, isn't it? it? It's definitely a force. And, and I really relate to you both because you're little girls who lost your mama and I'm a mama who lost her little girl. Yeah. Like we're both separated by this, whatever is between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And so, you know, that's the thing about this kind of um, fully inhabited grief is it, it helps us to see how much we have in common with people who are exactly like us and people who are not at all like us and even species who are not at all like us right who have also known loss and suffering, and maybe even the planet, we hope you know, because the planet's in a little bit of trouble, right? So, yes. you know, may fierce compassion extend out and reverberate out everywhere. And it's, it's sad that we have to go through such pain to kind of get to that place. But I do agree, like I felt more compassion and I thought I was quite an empathetic and compassionate person to begin with, but you start to understand people from a deeper level and you start I feel like yeah I just have a lot more empathy for people and people that are going through hard times like for instance if someone's got road rage you think what an asshole previously but I'm like oh my god maybe they're grieving yeah you know maybe yeah. that there's got they've got something really difficult going on and yeah it's just this hard-earned compassion that we all have now and right. Dr. Joe I know a lot of your research has um, ended up being around traumatic death. So I would love it if you could please just describe for our audience, like how would you define a traumatic death? <clears throat> um, yeah, I, uh, I'll give you a metaphor. I'll define it and then I'll give you a, for example, uh, it is 
the often catastrophic loss of a primary person in your life. Mm -hmm. It includes in, in the literature and in my work, the deaths of children at any age from any cause, the early death of a parent, um, the uh, homicide or suicide of a primary family member. Homicide and suicide almost always comes, you can imagine, with trauma and violence. Um, and uh, any kind of catastrophic loss that happens prematurely of a primary family member. But let me give you an example, because it's not just about who the person is. It's all, it's context. It's mm -hmm. what happened to the person. So I was working with two grieving moms, actually. And one of them lost her grandmother during the course of our work together. And her grandmother was in her mid to late 80s and had, for all intents and purposes, had a, quote, good death. Her, her she had good hospice care. The hospice was wonderful. Um, pain was well controlled. Everyone was there when death was imminent. Candles were lit. Grandmother was very open, good communication. Everyone talking about it before she died. She had her wishes well known, very cohesive family. Everyone was standing around holding hands. They had her play, favorite music playing. Candles were lit with her favorite scent. Um, and she died. And it it is, they were grief stricken, of course, but there wasn't the sharp edge of trauma. Mm. Contrast that to another bereaved mom I was working with about the same period of time, grandmother's similar age, lived independently, was very healthy, lived independently, and someone broke into her house during a botched robbery, murdered her. See the difference? Yeah. Yeah, you can feel the difference if you hear the story or enact the story, imagine the story in your mind. Mm -hmm. You don't expect someone to break into your grandma's house and murder her. Right. Even though she was elderly, even though she was, it's just, it's abnormal. It's catastrophic. Murder is catastrophic. So those are the kinds of uh, deaths that I primarily deal with. The deaths of children, any age, any cause, homicide, suicide, early death of a primary family member. It's so interesting to hear your perspective on that. Like my mom died suddenly um, from a seizure and mm -hmm. because it wasn't, I always thought it had to be something very um, intense for it to be a traumatic loss. So mm -hmm. it's interesting hearing you say that because I've always felt like it didn't qualify as a traumatic loss, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Did it feel traumatic to you? Did your body... In, did you experience the symptoms of a trauma? Oh, I think so. I mean, I'd love to get your perspective. I was, I think I was just on autopilot for a long time and like shock. And we always talk about this, Im, don't we? Im's mum died by suicide and the shock was just unbelievable, wasn't it, Im? And I think for quite a long time, and I know a lot of our listeners feel this way as well, it's like you, it's almost like out of body, like, yes. like it's just... It took a while for me, I think, for it to actually sink in. Yes, yes. Those are proprioceptive changes that occur because a complex trauma, so the interesting thing about trauma, the core, by the way, the core emotional experience of all trauma is either fear or terror. Sometimes it reaches the threshold of terror, mm -hmm. right? Fear or terror, that's trauma. And so when this happens, our body releases complex um, hormones into our bloodstream, 
norepinephrine, glucocorticoids, uh, cortisol get pumped into the bloodstream and it causes sensorial changes in our perception, right? Time changes quality. You remember that where it felt like you were almost in slow motion sometimes. And in some, and sometimes it was like things were zooming past you. You're like, what is happening? Time and space change, um, you know, your, all of your organ systems change, your digestion can be adversely affected. You can have, I mean, I hear people a lot of times, you know, dealing with gastrointestinal distress, headaches, you know, so a lot of somatic symptoms, rapid heart rate, feeling like there's pressure on your chest constantly. I mean, this is all, these are all symptoms associated with sort of the sharp edges of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so I, I think to some degree, I mean, yes, someone asked me once, can, can a traumatic experience be subjective? Certainly. Like, let me give you an example. I'll take something fairly superficial. Um, some people absolutely love roller coasters. I absolutely hate roller coasters. <laughs> I'm and, with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there are people who experience the stress of getting on a roller coaster as good stress. They're excited. They're not afraid. They're excited. So it's not a traumatic, even a mini traumatic experience for them. They're just excited. Their stress levels may be high, but it's a kind of good, subjectively good stress. Okay. But if I'm terrified of, of, of a roller coaster and someone forces me to get on and I'm crying and saying, please don't make me do this. Please don't make me do this. You can see how that would be sort of a mini trauma for me, right? Mm -hmm. I'm resisting, I'm terrified. And someone's forcing me to do something that subjectively is terrorizing to me. And so, yes, there's a subjective quality to it too, but you do get to a certain point where, you know, where it would pretty much be traumatic for anyone, like anyone losing a parent suddenly from for the vast majority of people that would be a traumatic experience for the vast majority of people losing your child is a traumatic experience for the vast majority of people you know your 16 year old brother dying in a car accident would be traumatic right so yes there is a certain degree of subjectivity to it but objectively there are some experiences that are objectively experienced by the vast majority as traumatic does that make sense Absolutely. And uh, there, was, there was a passage in your book where you were describing like after the loss of your daughter, Cheyenne, is that how you pronounce her name? Cheyenne, Cheyenne it's a beautiful name. And yes. you were like, I just want the clouds to stop moving. I want the grass to stop growing. Everything just needs to stop. And I think we live in a world where it's so fast paced. And when you're going through such trauma and the world keeps spinning, yes. it's just unbelievably hard. You know, yeah. it's just such yeah. a tricky, tricky time for people. Do you remember that feeling when you were like driving from the funeral home or from the memorial or whatever, and being in the car and looking at other people driving past you and they were laughing oh. or they were just talking like nothing happened <laughs> and you just want to scream. Do you know what just happened? Yes. <laughs> yes. And yes. I think that's, that's one of the things that a lot of grievers feel like something like the most awful and life-changing thing has just happened to you and everyone else is going about their day like it's absolutely like fine it's a great day and like I think you can kind of feel like a dissociation almost like what is going on and mm. something that I have heard you say before Joe, and I think it really nails it for a lot of grievers and how we feel is that 
after um, Cheyenne died, culture wanted you to move on. And you actually started to wonder whether you were crazy because it felt like everyone else was dismissing what your heart was saying. And I think that that is just, you just articulated it so well because people, society, they don't realize it. It's not something we get over. At the best we integrate, but it's very difficult to integrate and it's very difficult to get to, through this without good social support. There's such pressure for us to quote, move on. It is actually, it disturbs me that we have come, we have moved so far from a place of compassion, even animals like, you know, we have 50 rescue animals on the farm and even the animals take more time than people are given to mourn their dead kin. You know, we have a, a little sheep here named Bella and her mother Eva died. Um, not long ago. And Bella was sad for weeks. She sat mm -hmm. by herself for weeks oh. and she was sad. And, and the other sheep would just come up to her and they would sit with her. Sometimes they would put their head on her and they would nudge her a little bit, trying to get her to come and join, but she just didn't, she wasn't ready to. And then they just left her alone, not left her alone, like isolated, but they didn't push her to participate in whatever sheep do during the day on the farm. They just kind of let her be. They spent a really lovely amount of time being with her and then gave her some solitude time. And, you know, she, she's a sheep and she missed her mom, which is, okay, I can accept that animals have emotions, complex emotions like humans. I love animals, but my God, if we understand that sheep do it or that a, that a, that a pilot whale named J95 Telequa could carry her baby's dead body around the ocean for seven, almost seven weeks. And everyone oohed and awed and, oh, isn't that beautiful? She's grieving for seven weeks. Oh my God, this is so moving. Right. And it was, but we don't even give people a chance to grieve that long. Mm. So th this idea that we need to move on, this idea that in order to have a meaningful life, you have to move on from grief. I, I Actually, it's just the opposite. It's my connection with grief that helps me have a meaningful life. I always say it's not in spite of grief that I have a meaningful life. It's because of grief that I have a meaningful life. Mm. I love that. I absolutely love that. And, um, you mentioned the baby sheep and would love to know um, the work that you do. Well, I've always been an animal lover. I mean, I haven't eaten an animal since 1972. <laughs> so it's a long time. I um, adore animals and have always had a very huge passion, but I've never had farm animals. I mean, I just always rescued dogs and cats and that's the extent of it. Once a bunny. Um, so, <laughs> but, but. I was on a hike. It's a long story, the hike itself, but I, I was on this hike. I really wanted to go on. I never actually got to do the hike because within a few minutes of the trail, there was a horse who had fallen and his handler was hitting him and kicking him, trying to get him up. Oh. He was uh, bleeding from the head and bleeding from the knees. And he had packs all over his back. And to make a very long story short, we took the packs off. We stopped to attend to the horse and um, I took, we took the packs off and I looked at this horse and it was pretty horrible. His, actually the spine, his, the bone of his spine was actually coming through his skin. Oh, oh gosh. He was at least five or 600 pounds underweight. He was very, very close to death. And to make a very long story short, it took me three days to rescue him, but I did. Uh, never had a horse before. No, didn't wow. really think about horses. 
fortunately we had horse property at the time. So I put up some panels and put them in my backyard <laughs> and uh, rehabilitated him and then started to notice. I work with a lot of native clients, native American clients and started to notice how my native clients really related to him and loved him. And they would emote more in front of him than they would in front of me. And I, I just saw some very interesting dynamics going on. And I was like, well, okay, um, let me look at this. And I then started looking at hippotherapy, which is therapy with horses. And that wasn't what was happening. It was relational. It was symbiotic. Mm -hmm. And it was something about this horse who had known suffering, who had been close to death, who had known fear, loss, grief, torture, anguish, mm -hmm. all the things that all these people knew and they were relating to him. And I was like, this is relational. This is symbiotic. This is powerful. So I reached out to a guy in the UK, Rich Gorman. And at the time, I think he was at Exeter and uh, he, he researched care farms and we talked for a while. And he said, you know, the bad thing about care farms is they're working farms. And, you know, you have people who fall in love with these animals, like really fall in love with these animals. And then they're sent off to slaughter or their mm. babies are sold. And I said, well, I'm a vegan. <laughs> that won't happen. <laughs> That's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> so, so we decided and we looked and we, Rich was seminal in that. We, we looked at a bunch of properties and started planning the care farm. And that was, we started planning it about seven and a half years ago. Uh, six years ago, got the property and we've been running day pro we started running day programs about six years ago. And uh, the house, the actual house on site where people can stay um, is uh, let's see, I think it's two and a half years old or two years and a couple months. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and it's amazing. We have 50 animals now they've all been rescued wow. except for uh, there are one, two, three goats and a donkey who were not rescued. They were born here because we rescued all their mothers pregnant. So yeah. it's interesting because we have four animals on the farm who have never known anything but love and affection. Aww. That is incredible. And uh, oh, it's just amazing. And we had a um, a question come in for you from one of our community members, Tracy Sandra, and she wants to know, what does a day at the care farm look like for visitors? Oh, wow. It depends on the visitor. So one of the things that I'm a firm believer in is that everyone comes to the experience of loss individually in a collective system, but they have individual, their individual history. Some people, maybe they're scared of dogs, for example, or horses. I mean, horses are big, powerful big. animals. Um, so we don't make anyone do anything they're not comfortable with, but Usually even people who are afraid of animals to a greater or lesser degree, by the time they leave, they've interacted with our animals and fallen madly in love with our animals because they're just such amazing little guys. So what a day might look like, an example of a day. So there's no absolute protocol. For two weeks out of the month, we do what's called um, individual um, counseling opportunities on the farm. So someone comes in, let's say they want to do three, they want to stay three days and they think they need two or three hours a day of counseling. It's called an intensive. Um, they can come for that period of time. We have some options for them, spending time with the animals, helping to do chores. Um, we have some yoga teachers who come on site and then two weeks a month, we do an individual program and 
uh, or a group program. So the group program is where people come and they do all group work. So we do group art therapy, group yoga, um, and group counseling. And then the individual includes some group work and some art therapy and yoga, et cetera, and then individual counseling on top of it. The reason is because this is a pilot program. And so we're responding. We're always changing it in response to the needs of the people who come here. We have an exit survey. We ask people, what was it like for you? What do you wish for? And, and we care. We want to provide what people are needing. So um, the, overwhelmingly, the, their favorite thing on the farm is time with the animals. Mm -hmm overwhelmingly the shared trauma narratives are the most powerful thing for people. They, they learn about, for example, Bella, whose mom Eva died and it moves them deeply, or they find about, out about Artemisia, one of our sheep um, who lost two babies in a coyote attack before we rescued her. Or they find out about Chimaco, the horse I saved who was being beaten and abused and starved and lost everything. And they connect with these animals and they see that these animals with love and compassion can trust in the world again. Mm. And they see themselves in that. They, they see maybe a morsel, a tiny morsel of hope that with love and compassion from others, they can get through this. And that's key. These animals would not be rehabilitated to the extent they have been if they weren't met with love and compassion and tenderness. Mm. It's incredible work that you do, Dr. Joe. And like for Im and I personally, we have dogs and they have helped us so much in our grief, like so, so much. And we actually um, get a lot of messages from listeners who have lost a pet saying, please, can you do an episode talking about pet loss? Like I've lost my dog, my cat, I've lost an animal that I love and I'm in such pain. And I feel like they feel like it's not, a valid grief that they can express, but it really is valid, isn't it? Pet loss is just as valid. Oh, I think I think the loss of an, a beloved animal can be an extremely painful thing for people, particularly like um, in my work. So I, I don't work directly with pet loss, but I work with people, for example, whose child died. And when their child died, they took in their child's dog. And when their child's dog dies, it's like they have to regrieve for their child too. Mm. It gets very complicated. I mean, animals can be in a sense, these transitional beings that represents not just this companion and compassionate relationship. By the way, did you see my study that I published about good grief support? Yes. Yes. So important. Yes. So important. Animals <laughs> outperform in group in grief support, animals outperformed every group of humans, therapists, nurses, doctors, medical staff, uh, um, social workers, um, family, friends, colleagues, they outperformed everybody by a long shot. Yeah. Huge dis difference between the way people feel about their animals. So, so they are these beloved beings in our lives who bring absolute non-judgment they, br they bring a lot of support to us. And so when you have someone, I, again, this is not my particular area, but when you have someone who's experienced the death of a pet, they mm. who they love, then it can create a sense of like this being who was my emotional support, who was my companion, my best friend, my fur baby, you know, has died mm. and, it, and it can feel absolutely catastrophic for them particularly for people who don't have a lot of human support systems, right? Right. 
Definitely. And I think, you know, we will definitely dedicate a whole episode to pet loss because it is such an important topic and we don't want anyone out there feeling like their grief isn't valid. Um, Dr. Joe, I would like to just jump back onto the topic of child loss. Um, I have heard you mention before in another podcast interview that when you experienced child loss yourself, you found that there weren't many resources available that spoke to you. And it was a topic that people were sort of almost too afraid to even approach, which can leave you feeling really isolated in your grief. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why do you think people find it so hard to talk about child loss and where, where do you think that fear stems from? Yeah. I mean, I think you just said it, it's fear. Yeah. Right. It's, it's hard, especially if people have children themselves, mm-hmm. it's very hard to imagine the possibility that your child can die that your newborn baby or your two-year-old or your 15-year-old can die or your 30-year-old can die. It's very, very hard because it's not, it's just not something we want to imagine, right? Mm -hmm. It's out of, it's so out of order. Parents, you know, the Chinese have a saying, it's it's considered a Chinese blessing. Grandfather dies, father dies, child dies, Mm -hmm. right? That's the order. And when Mm -hmm. it's, when it's, when it doesn't go like this, it really disrupts. It's uh, Janoff Bowman, a, a, a scholar in the field, calls it a shattered world assumption. Yes. Yeah. And so I think when people are confronted with that, it can be very, very terrifying. Like, you know, if, if, uh, if this woman over here dies, uh, excuse me, if this woman over here has her three-year-old die of cancer and her best friend has a four-year-old who used to play with her three-year-old, she's going to have to deal with a lot of fear and other emotions around, oh my God, <laughs> you know, I didn't realize three-year-olds could get cancer. If a three-year-old can get cancer, can a four-year-old get cancer? And seeing that all the time can be very hard. On top of it, it's not just the fear. It's also the, the way that we treat grief. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up sometimes happening is that friends and family put pressure on grieving people to quote, feel better, to mm-hmm. move on, to, you know, whatever get over it pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing and that kind of pressure can either create a withdrawal a social withdrawal on the part of the grieving person understandably it feels like you're being psychologically assaulted every day you're being Mm -hmm. told don't feel what you feel right um or you can get a little angry a little ticked off and that can sometimes cause other people to retract, to back away from the grieving person. Either way, it's unhelpful to have that attitude toward grief because you're going to create a chasm. If if you love someone who's deeply grieving and you don't learn how to approach them with compassion, love, without pressure, without coercion, just listen, remember, talk to them about their person who died. Look at pour over photographs and and videos and ask questions and say their name, all of those things. And if you don't do that, then the chasm between you and the grieving person is more likely to widen Mm -hmm. and the grieving person will start feeling more and more alone. And then sadly, what we do is see that grieving person's pathological. That person has a problem rather than we as a society have a problem because we don't know how to support that person. We, Mm -hmm. We consistently blame the victim, whether it's the effects of, of, you know, ethnic or racial prejudice or poverty, we're always blaming the victim or grief. We're always blaming the victim rather than taking responsibility as a society. Yes. Yes. It's almost like sometimes I think grievers, we feel like we're being gaslit, you know, because it's like people don't acknowledge the pain and then you feel like 
so isolated, like you're doing something wrong or you should be moving through it, you know, or over it by a certain point. And um, something you say, Joe, is that when you lose, like you said earlier, you lose a child, it feels like at just out of the natural order of things and it's bearing the unbearable, which is the title of your book. And I'd love to know, like, how has your grief evolved over the years since losing Cheyenne? Oh, I don't know if grief has evolved. I think I've evolved. Yeah. Right? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I have a lot more emotional muscle than I ever did before. I mean, I just feel like there isn't anything that I couldn't handle. There are things I wouldn't want to handle. I don't want to lose another child. I don't want to lose other people I love, but I really trust myself with whatever feelings I have and whatever experiences I have. I feel quite equanimous and quite like I've built up a lot of emotional muscle to carry it. I don't know that the grief is less. I mean, I guess some of the sharp edges of grief have worn down a little bit and certainly some of the trauma mm -hmm. of her death. But I mean, there are times even now where I'll just, it'll just, you know, I'll just have a re-grief wave, a tsunami of re-grief. And I'm like, whoa, wow, that's a big one. You know, and I go, okay, you know what to do. You know, go on a barefoot hike, go stand with Chamaco, go mm -hmm. write, go, you know, do the things you know to do to be with grief, to make space for it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I think it's more me evolving, really. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing about grief, right? I mean, all you know, the other thing about grief that I think is so important is it's not this sort of singular monolithic emotion. It's, it's, it's so many emotions. It's such a mix of emotion. Grief is anger and rage and terror and fear and worry and confusion and guilt and sorrow and shame and regret and envy and jealousy and, 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 you know, it's, there are so many little, little micro emotions that make up grief and it's constantly moving and changing. And, you know, I guess, I guess even like fierce compassion is an emotion can, can be an emotion sort of under, I call it the grief umbrella under the grief umbrella. Mm. And so I, I think, you know, from, from, from my sort of whatever perspective I have for my own personal grief, I think for me, I just noticed that the emotions are always moving through me. And when I fully inhabit them, they move and they, they bring different feelings, different emotions and different feelings. And if I can create enough space to just be with it and not judge it and not try to change it, it moves. And then I never know what's going to come out of it. You know, I mean, mm. sometimes really amazing things come out of just feeling my feelings, insights, um, you know, everything from, you know, endogenous shifts to, you know, from insights to exogenous shifts, building a care farm, you know, starting a nonprofit, um, you know, offering, offering to listen to someone in a parking lot who I found crying, you know, I mean, just whatever. Mm. You and know? that's, the, that's the thing. I think it's being brave enough to feel, feel the, the deep emotions. Cause I think sometimes it's really scary when you're grieving and, and I just want to just backtrack slightly, Joe. Um, when Cheyenne died, you had three young children and a lot of our listeners have lost a child and also have other children. How did you manage grieving your baby daughter and being present for your kids? And what advice do you have around that? 
Ooh, that is a great question because it was not easy. Um, mm. I definitely needed more support around me than I had. Uh, cause I was, I was really flailing. I was, um, I weighed less than 90 pounds. I don't know how many stones that is, but it's not a lot. What about um, kilos? I don't know about kilos. <laughs> uh, I was very, very thin and, um, I was, and I was thin because it felt like I had a constant grapefruit in my throat. Hmm. I, had, I couldn't swallow. I, I, I was just, it was like my lacrimal glands were constantly full. And, and I really had a dearth of support. There was not great support. I tried, I went to counselors. They were all very deficient in their compassion and deficient in their wisdom about grief and mm -hmm. trauma. And so I really couldn't find the kind of help I needed to, to, to be able to then be present for my children in a way that I would have, that I wished I could have been. Uh, I tried as much as I could to talk to them about it. I cried a lot. Um, I, I would apologize to them and say, I'm sorry, I'm not the mommy you used to know. Cause I wasn't, I was this sort of gregarious outgoing mom. Let's go to the science center today. Let's go to the park today. Let's go to the lake today. I mean, I always had some master plan. It was, they were always having fun and I could barely brush my teeth. Mm -hmm. So, and in the absence of support, that, that sense of aloneness, that sense of loneliness, which is also one of the defining characteristics of traumatic grief and extreme sense of loneliness because of how we avoid grief and griever alike, mm -hmm. um, really put me in a very bad sort of emotional place. Like emotionally, I was really struggling with, with the world. So I think, um, I think what would have been helpful would, would, would have been to have a, a circle of compassion, a community of compassion around me. Mm -hmm. somewhere I could go where people would validate how I felt. Cause everywhere I went, people were invalidating it. Well, mm. at least it was the baby who died, not the 10 year old or, uh. at least it, you know, or, you know, at least, at least you weren't attached or the platitudes. Know. Oh my God. Uh. Just, you know, well, God needed an angel to tend his garden. God only takes the good ones. I mean, just mm. the ridiculous things that people say. And, um, I was, it was just terrible. It was really, really awful. The first mm. Yeah, it was really awful. So I I tried to talk to them as honestly as I could. I I wasn't as present as I wanted to be because I was flailing. I was really looking for support and couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. And I I that was one of the reasons why I started the foundation because I was sitting in my closet floor with my knees to my chest. It was two o'clock in the morning. I didn't sleep well at all after she died and I didn't eat. So I was in my closet on my closet floor and I was rocking back and forth with my knees pulled up, just mm -hmm. sobbing, going through, this is back when we had something called the yellow pages. We didn't have the internet back then. Yellow yeah. pages. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I, and I was calling disconnected number after disconnected number of support mm -hmm. groups. I, I was just trying to find someone. Will you, someone just listen to me and say, my God, how awful for you. Tell me how much you miss her. Tell me about her. Tell me about your grief. I, and I just couldn't find any, all I could find were just people who were completely ignorant about it. So it was hard. It was rough. When I finally started figuring it out, you know, I am very honest. I was always very direct with my kids. I didn't hide anything from them. Um, and, and I think that was probably what 
was what the best benefit was that I was very open with them and said, you guys, you know, your sister died and I'm very, very sad. And I know that it will be okay. Someday we'll be okay. And we'll get through this. But right now I'm just really struggling and I'm very, very sad. And I love you all. And I also love her. I don't, I love you all the same. And it's very hard for me because I've got one over here and I've got you three over here. And, you know, they, they probably were more understanding than most of the adults around me, to be honest. They were probably emotionally more intelligent than most of the adults around me at the time. Kids and animals, right? right? Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Joe. Um, I have a daughter, she's three and a half, and my mom's death was very sudden and traumatic. Um, and I struggle a lot. And I know this is something a lot of our listeners struggle with too, with the the trauma and the anxiety around it and kind of getting preoccupied with death and fearing that everyone else you love is going to die. Is that something that you experienced having, you know, three other children at the time? Like how did you deal with those thoughts and feelings? I still deal with those. Okay. Yeah. 28 and a half years later, I still, I still deal with those. And of course, of course it's scary for you because I mean, we do tend to think, well, we're going to grow old and we're going to die a natural death. And yeah. And like you said, does, the natural order of things, right? And when things don't go that way, anything's right. possible. Yes. And then you suddenly realize the finitude and the fragility of life and that people we love deeply can and do die before we're ready. And not that we're ever ready, but before their time, they can and do die. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be very jolting. It can be, it can be really, really, really hard to for the brain to to absorb that. So how do I deal with it then? And now, um, then I did, I probably didn't deal with it as well. Then I was probably a little overprotective. Yeah. Um, I tried to balance it. I knew I was, I knew what I was doing. I was conscious of what I was doing. So I tried to balance it with, you know, some self-talk, like it'll be okay. It, it'll be okay. It's just a carousel. You can stand on the carousel, <laughs> you know, it's, yes. it'll be okay, right? You just get afraid of a lot of things. I Everything, mean, yeah. Sort of this, this global generalized non-specific fear is a real thing with traumatic grief. Um, but even now today, the way that I cope with it is a little bit different. I, I just make sure that they always know how much I love them. And mm-hmm. I make sure that I minimize my regret. So, you know, I have grown children, like my oldest is 36 years old and I, and, and I tell him, I love him a lot and he knows it mm-hmm. a lot, you know? And so I try to communicate that as much as I can. And I try not to have regrets. I try not to, you know, I, I try, I'm, I, I always ask myself if he was dying, would this be a big deal? Like if I'm going to get mad at one of my kids, it, if he was dying, would this be a big deal? No, it wouldn't. So then let it go. Why stress yes. about it? You know, I, I mean, just it's perspective, right? It's like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want this to impede my relationship, even for a moment, just Mm -hmm. in case. Cause, cause, and remember I do this work every day too. So I'm, I, you know, I work individually with people one-on-one and I'm a researcher and in, this is what I research. And that I've been personally, I've been through it. I've been through the death of both of my parents and my brother as well, after my daughter died. And so, so I've got all of this grief that it's always there. And I'm like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I, there's nothing I can do about the people I love dying, except to make sure that my time with them is really special. 
I love that. It's beautiful. And is, you know, it's perspective, isn't it? Like we mm-hmm. live in that in between world now. And there's something that about your work that I really love. And it just made so much sense. And I think it kind of talks to the way society views death and grief. But your work is really about separating the two. And grief is not something that we should fear. It's something that we should really embrace. Whereas death is the thing that society should be looking at and not making us, you know, rush out the door. Like I think that, yeah, separating the two things has been really helpful for us to understand a different relationship with our grief. Yeah. And I think like what you said earlier, Joe, about grief being a really powerful force and it shouldn't be something that's feared, like, because when you kind of really inhabit grief, you can do some really important things like the work that you've done. And it doesn't mean it's painless. It's still painful, mm-hmm. right? And that's and you bring up a really, really important point, Em, is that is that you know people get mad at grief and call grief an asshole when grief comes in and takes the person they love most in the world too soon, and and they think oh, they want to manage grief or overcome grief or fight grief or I've literally had people say grief is such an asshole. No, it's not. Death is an asshole, yeah. but grief grief is just the innocent bystander. Grief is just because, I mean, and this is the magic question. If you woke up tomorrow and felt absolutely no grief, how would that be for you? Yeah, it would feel, I, I don't think I'd want to get rid of it. Like I really right. don't, I don't right. know. Right, right. So when we yeah, analyze it, you know. Question, oh my gosh. Yes, it's very powerful. You've both lost your moms and those are important. Some of the, one of the most important people in your world. And if you woke up tomorrow and you're like, oh, I'm fine. I don't miss her. I don't feel sad. I'm fine. You would be like, what's wrong with me? Yeah. Yes. So true. But everyone in society is looking at you because you are feeling sad and you are feeling miserable. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Right. Yeah. We got a lot of work to do, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Joe, last question from us. You've done a lot of research into rituals and we'd love to know what you found about rituals and honoring our loved ones. And specifically, maybe if a listener has lost a child, um, how they can kind of honor, honor them through rituals. Tell us a little bit about your work in that space. Yeah, we, we love rituals around the farm. We have lots of different rituals. <laughs> Um, you know, Dr. Suki Miller wrote a book and she calls ritual the antidote to helplessness or powerlessness. Mm. And I, and I really love that. I mean, I think one of the, one of the ways that we invoke their presence now can be through ritual Mm -hmm. and ritual can be in one of my studies. I found that people do these sort of big rituals, funerals, but also candle lighting ceremonies and, you know, marathons where they run for their child or their parent or their brother or sister. They do these big events and toy drives and blood drives, which are all really lovely, right? But there's another aspect of ritual too that's a little more private and intimate. It's called the, I call it a micro ritual. And I have a lot of micro rituals. Like for example, in the morning, I have a butsudan for Shai, which is a, a Japanese cabinet mm-hmm. and um, her ashes are there. And it's it's where I like burn incense for her and remember her and uh, that the the butsudan is my little micro ritual and i just say 
I love you, honey. I miss you. I'm sorry. I couldn't save you. Right. And that's a little micro ritual. It's what I do for her to connect to her, to invoke her presence in that moment. So ritual can be so much more than what we think it is. You know, we tend to think of ritual as this thing you have to plan and it, you know, takes all this planning and organizing and all these people. And no, it can be a micro ritual where you you know, where if you, if you and your mom had a cup of tea every day, once in a while, you just make two cups of tea, right? Mm -hmm. And just put the other cup of tea and have a conversation with mom in your mind. And that can be a ritual, right? So it can be these sweet little moments where we just call on them, recall them, remember them, bring them back into our hearts. Mm -hmm. And uh, God, there's so much power in that. I, I, I just think we are generally in the West devoid of ritual. We don't have very sophisticated ritual. Our definition of ritual is so narrowly defined. And um, and I would like to see us expand it a little bit and 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 get a little bit better at at creating our own rituals to remember. Yeah. Beautiful. That. Such a such a beautiful idea. And Dr. Joe, this conversation has been really powerful we've learned so much from you and so thank you so much for your time and for anyone listening who would like to hear more from you where can they find you um well if you've lost a child the miss foundation website is um missfoundation.org uh if you've had any traumatic grief parent sibling spouse or partner child the sella care farm is sella care farm s-e-l-a-h care farm.com and then I have a website with lots of free resources, including free books for, for children. There's a wonderful book, um, uh, children's book available online in English and Spanish. It's free. It's a free PDF download. You can find it there at, at just my name, joannecacciatore.com. Beautiful. And we'll link all of these in the show notes as well. And hopefully one day Sal and I are over on your side of the world. We'd love to come and visit the care farm on our bucket list, that is. There you go. Yeah, you yeah. will you will meet 11 of the naughtiest, most wonderful goats ever. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Dr. Joe, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure and an honor, and we are so appreciative of your time. So huge thank you. Thank you. What an incredibly wise and wonderful woman, Dr. Joanne. I absolutely adore her, and we need to go and hang out with her on the farm, please. Oh my God, yes. We need to bucket list that for sure. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, so amazing. Um, Guys, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget that our book is available now um, and it's coming out soon in the US and you can click the link in our show notes to buy it or pre-order it. Thanks again, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.